So as Nityananda Prabhu said, we're celebrating today Govardhan Puja, which takes place tomorrow in Diwali. And also this is the month of Damodar, so we're celebrating every day the pastime of Krishna being bound by the love of his mother in the form of a rope. I just want to tell you something about Damodar before we begin, because there's a very interesting detail to this pastime. Krishna became upset with his mother because she was breastfeeding him. And milk was boiling over on the stove. So she stopped breastfeeding him, put him down to turn the milk off. 
Actually, the milk was a person and was jealous because the milk also wanted to feed Krishna. So the milk boiled over on the stove. And then Mother Yasoda stopped feeding Krishna. And she went to take care of the milk. And Krishna became very upset that his mother left him. So he was in the courtyard where butter and yogurt was stored. He became so upset, he broke the pots. It was kind of like having a tantrum. And Mother Yasoda was very concerned that if I don't tie him up, he's going to create more mischief. And I have to tend to my duties. Thank you. Hare Krishna. So I have to attend to my duties, and if I don't tie him up, he's going to break more pots and create more mischief. So I have to tie him up. So she got some rope and tried to tie him up. Unfortunately, the rope was two fingers too short. So she got some more rope and sufficient amount of rope to tie him up, but somehow or other, the rope was two fingers too short. And then she got some more rope, more than sufficient to tie him up, but somehow or other, it wouldn't fit around him. And then she finally got every rope in the whole village. And this was a cowherd village, so it was a lot of ropes. Because to take care of cows, you need ropes. pull them To pull them here and there, hither and thither. So that wasn't sufficient. Can you believe that? How is it possible that every rope in the whole village was too short to fit around a little waist, maybe this big. How was that possible? Well, there was a lesson behind it. But before I tell you the lesson, I don't know if you know how she finally was able to tie him up. She had a hair tie. A little whatever, how much it takes to tie the hair. It was about the size of his waist. She took that out and that's how she tied him up. She tied into a grinding mortar with her hair tie, but somehow all the ropes in the village weren't big enough, but her hair tie was big enough. You want to know why? You know why? You know why? <laughs> Should I tell you why? Yeah. It's interesting, because when Krishna performs the pastimes, there, there are many things that are going on simultaneously. There's, a, there's hidden plots and lessons coming in all directions. So in one direction, there is this exchange between Krishna and his mother. But in another direction, he's teaching about effort and how when we make effort, then Krishna is willing to bestow his mercy. So Krishna saw that his mother was trying to tie him up. Actually, she spent the whole day trying to tie him up, running after him. Come back, come back. Then getting him and tying him up and running away. The whole afternoon was spent. And Krishna refused to be tied up. He just wouldn't allow it. And because he wouldn't allow it, no matter how many ropes she got, it was insufficient. You ever try to do something, and the harder you try, the worse it gets? That ever happened to you? When I was a kid, it happened almost every day. When I tried to fix something, I would definitely ruin it. And the harder I tried to fix it, the more I would ruin it. But I think as adults, we also sometimes are in situations where we can't fix it, but we try. 
and we keep trying, and we're always two fingers too short. Isn't it? And sometimes things fall into place, and we didn't even try. Isn't it? It's just like, wow, how did that happen? That was amazing. I hardly did anything. And everything just lined up. This person came, and these resources came, and this happened, and I met this person who knows this person who could do this, and it just falls into place. So Krishna was teaching that it's not only by your effort that you accomplish something, that you achieve success, but you also have to have God's mercy. And if you don't have his mercy, you can try all afternoon and you can get all the resources you need, which is ropes that are sufficiently long, to do the job, and somehow or other they don't do the job. Isn't that interesting? So Krishna saw that his mother was trying so hard, and she was perspiring, she was tired, and then Krishna decided, okay, I, I don't want my mother to suffer, so I'm going to allow her to tie me up. And at that point, when he said, okay, you can tie me, she pulled out the hair tie and tied him up with the hair tie. So, there are commentaries on this pastime, because whenever Krishna does something, there's always deeper meanings behind it that aren't always obvious. So you go to the commentaries of the acharyas, of the gurus. And what's interesting about some of these commentaries, I don't know if you know this, but in some of these commentaries, the gurus are making commentaries like they were there, like they were right there watching it and telling you, like if I... I just came from, where was I? I was in Las Vegas, I was in Los Angeles, and I was in Central California. So I can tell you what happened. And so they're telling us what happened as if they're there. How, how do they do that? Because they see the pastimes within their heart, so they're actually there. It's said that when a devotee becomes advanced, when he chants Hare Krishna, he can see Krishna's pastimes. But when he becomes more advanced... He's in the pastime. Sound good? Is that inspiring you to chant? You could actually see Krishna eventually and be in the pastime. So they're seeing the pastimes and they're describing what's happening. And they're understanding things in a very subtle level. So what they describe is that there's a lesson here that Krishna's teaching. That by effort alone, we cannot be successful. We can only be successful when God agrees and gives his mercy. And then we can be successful. And that there are things we can never achieve unless we have his mercy. We cannot do it on our own. But if we please him and he's satisfied and he gives us mercy, then we can be successful. Now, what's an example of this? I was telling this story the other day, and even though... I was involved in this story, retelling it almost 50 years later. Even I was amazed telling it. Go back to 1965. Srila Prabhupada comes. He finally settles in and gets things moving, maybe the latter part of 65 or early 1966. And who is coming to hear Bhagavad Gita? Brahmins? Scholars? Who's coming to hear? Hippies. So, so what do you do if you're a teacher? You teach those who are willing to hear. It doesn't matter who they are. If they're willing to hear, you teach them. 
That was the crowd that was willing to hear. That was the crowd Prabhupada was teaching. And then after teaching them for about a year, he reveals his vision. I'm here to start an international society. They couldn't believe it. There was one temple and a few, a few straggly hippies and Prabhupada saying, my vision is to start an international society. Like we say in America, yeah, right. Like nobody could believe it. And then what does he do? He takes these people and says, you, you go here, you go here, you go here, you know, 20 years old, 22, 23, you're going to London, you're going to Germany, you're going to France, you're going here, you're going there. And these teenagers and young adults were barely out of their diapers and coming down off of, you know, detoxing from all the drugs they were taking for the last five or ten years, are now going around the world and making other people Krishna conscious. If you meditate on that, you realize you would not bet one cent that that could ever be possible. Right? Prabhupada has come to America. You want to bet his movement would be successful? I'm not going to bet. There's no way. It can't be. He's just got a bunch of hippies. How did it happen? It happened because of mercy. Mercy allows you to do things which are normally impossible. Krishna's here, and we're here. And there's this big gap in the middle which we cannot traverse. No matter how hard we try, we're going to hit. We hit a wall, and mercy comes, and we take the elevator back to Krishna, to the spiritual world. That's how mercy works. It fills in the gap for which we cannot we cannot achieve on our, by our own energy. So this Dhammadar Leela teaches us that when we make effort, Krishna sees he's trying. It's not so much how good we are at doing it, but it's how sincere we are at doing it. Because Krishna really doesn't care how good you are. He cares how sincere you are. That's what he looks at. We have material conceptions, so we judge people by how good they are, right? The clothes they wear, how smart they are, what job do you have, where do you live, what car do you drive, what watch do you wear, what's the brand on your shoe. Krishna doesn't do that. Krishna judges by the heart. He sees what's in the heart. And even though we're not so capable, if Krishna sees that we're sincere, he gives mercy. And we're able to do what is ordinarily impossible for us to do. And so that's the history of the Hare Krishna movement. It was, it was spread by people who were basically unqualified to spread it. But that gap was filled by mercy and they were successful. Just think about this. This movement was spread around the world by people in their early 20s or younger. I was 19 when I was a president. Teenagers and early 20s. Can you believe it? That's all there was. And they spread it around the world. That's how mercy works. So that's one lesson we get from the Dhammadar Leela. And there's one other lesson I want to share, which is very beautiful. So as I said, Mother Yasoda was feeding Krishna, and then the milk in the kitchen, kitchen boiled over, so she put Krishna down. And the kitchen was about 15 feet from where she was feeding him. And even though they were 15 feet away, their love was so intense that they were both feeling intense separation from one another, and they couldn't tolerate being away from one another. But Mother Yasoda, she felt even more separation from Krishna than Krishna felt from her. And Krishna was jealous that she felt more separation. And so, you know, we talk a lot about love in the material world. 
But this is love. That you're 15 feet away from your child and you can't bear the separation. And all of you who are parents, you know sometimes you need more than 15 feet just to recuperate. Isn't it? And if you can get your mother or father or mother-in-law or father to look after them for a day and you know just go out and walk around White Rock Lake and recuperate, that's like great pleasure. Isn't it? Sometimes. Mother Yasoda could not tolerate Krishna's separation. When Krishna was young, he would herd the calves and every morning he would go out with his friends. And Mother Yasoda could not tolerate it. She couldn't let him go. It was the hardest thing. She kept asking Krishna, do you need anything? Can I give you this? And then he'd take a few steps and she'd run after him. What else can I give you? You have enough to eat. You know, and, and then a few more steps. Watch your feet. You know, there's thorns on the road. She couldn't bear the separation. So what we learn from this pastime is seeing in action what love really is. Otherwise, we talk about love and we talk about love of one another and love of God. But until we actually see what that love is, it's just more a, an amorphous idea, uh, just a fuzzy feeling, or a, we'll conceive of it in a very material way. So this pastime demonstrates this intense love that is unseen anywhere in this world. Just a moment separation by 15 feet is practically impossible for them to bear. Isn't that amazing? And so this is how we understand love when we hear about the pure devotees and their exchanges with Krishna. And that inspires us to want to get that love because it's only that love that will ever satisfy us. And it's only that love that is pure because it's free from envy. It's free from desire. It's free from hatred. It's free from lust. It's free from any inebriety. Therefore, it's the purest love. Is your love free from inebriety? You have to ask yourself. Is it giving solely for the pleasure of the other person? That's very rare. That's what we see. Sisirata Dhammada Ki Jai. So, as Nityananda Prabhu said, Diwali or Deepavali is celebrated when Lord Ram comes home from exile in the forest. It's celebrated by the Buddhists, it's celebrated by the Jains. They all have their light ceremony, but it's not a celebration of Lord Ram. They have their own celebration. So it seems that practically every, everywhere in the world there's celebration of lights. And light represents knowledge, represents goodness, darkness represents ignorance, right? It represents evil. And the Leela, the pastime of Lord Ram, is a pastime of good versus evil, light versus darkness. And whenever... Whenever I meditate on a pastime of good and evil, I always think, or I try to think, what is the evil in me that I can learn from this pastime? Because normally when we talk about good versus bad, evil over darkness, we always tend to think, I'm not evil. How many of you think you're evil? Raise your hand. (laughs) <laughs> two <laughs> we have two honest people here tonight there 
we don't always act on the evil, but there are evil things within us, isn't it? Uh, things trigger us. Things disturb us. Sometimes we yell at people because we don't like the way they drive. Some people just don't like the way other people look. They're the wrong color, and that upsets them. So it's, it's good to reflect when we're talking about good versus evil. Don't just make the assumption that I'm on the good side because I'm a good person. Look at what may not be good in you that you could improve because none of us are perfect. You have any perfect people here? Raise your hand if you're perfect. Perfect and humble at the same time, right? Yeah. So we all know we are works in progress. So it, I've spoken, I've often spoken about Lord Rama and Ravana because Ravana is the, what do you call the, there's the hero, well he's the villain, he's the co-star I guess of the Ramayana. And and whenever I talk about it, I always ask people this question. Introspect and try to find the Ravana within you. What aspects of Ravana, who is this archetype of a demon? What what qualities does that you see in him that you might have some that might be in you to some degree? I think that's important. And that's helpful. And that way we learn from the bad people, reflect. And we also learn, what do we also learn from bad people? We learn how not to behave, to not behave like them, because bad people hurt people. And we see that and we can learn from them. So, tomorrow is Govardhan Puja. Govardhan Puja means the hill Govardhan was worshipped, and Govardhan means the best hill. And we're celebrating it today because you're all here today. So for those of you who don't know the story, I'll try to simplify it and then we can discuss a little more about it and what we can learn from it. This takes place in a village called Vrindavan. How many of you have been to Vrindavan? Raise your hand. So maybe a third of you. If you haven't been to Vrindavan, I would recommend you go as soon as possible. In fact, if you go tomorrow, you'll arrive there in the middle of Kartik. I want to tell you a story about Vrindavan before we talk about Govardhan Puja. There is a devotee I'm close with. I'm actually close with his father. I knew his father since about 1972. And this devotee spends a lot of time in Vrindavan. And when groups come from the West to Vrindavan... He's their tour guide, and he's, he's a very dynamic person and a very likable person, and he's the perfect person to take a tour. So a group of people came, and they didn't come to Vrindavan because they were looking for spiritual life. They came with their professor because they were, were doing photography. It was a photography class. So I guess they were doing photographic journalism for their class. But their professor was a devotee. So every year he brings his class to Vrindavan. And for a Westerner to go to Vrindavan, it's like a circus. I mean, it's just everything you see you've never seen before. You know, it's just endlessly... If, if you're Indian, maybe you take it for granted. But for an American to go to a village in India, it's like you know, 
you lose track of time. It's like, what year is this? Is this like 1347, you know, and bullock carts and and cows plowing the land and women carrying pots on their head and getting the water from the well. It's like timeless. So you imagine you're a photographer and there's, you know, the morning, all the women are walking and the sun's rising. There's amazing pictures you can get, right? So they go around Vrindavan to to all, and Vrindavan is full of holy places, and they go around all these places, click, 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 seeing all these amazing things. So the last day, they call up Gopal, and they're leaving, and say, Gopal, we have to see you before we're going, because we all have the same question. He says, okay. And they, they come to Gopal, and they say, Gopal, they say, Gopal, what is this feeling we have being in Vrindavan? We've never had this feeling before. It was like Vrindavan is such a special place that you have this feeling, this love, this compassion, this this spiritual consciousness. You can never get anywhere else. And you get it just by being there. You don't even have to be a devotee. You don't have to be practicing bhakti. You don't even have to know about it. And just by being there, you feel something so special. So Vrindavan is the place Krishna grew up. It's, I lived in Vrindavan, and I can say, testify, those few years I lived there, was I was higher than high. And I was a hippie, so you know what I did as a hippie. So we got pretty high, chemically. But this was higher than high. So it, was a, it is a tradition amongst Hindus to worship different demigods, devatas, the god of rain or the god of sun or the god of this or the god of that. So Indra is the god of rain, and every year they would worship Indra because they were farmers, and farmers need water. And if you don't get water, you're in huge trouble. So they would worship Indra to ensure they would get sufficient rain. And one year Krishna said, You don't have to worship Indra. What has he got to do with anything? You just do your work. You have your karma. And what you should actually worship is Govardhan Hill because Govardhan Hill is the hill that provides all the grasses for our cows and it provides all the shade and all the things we need comes from Govardhan Hill. So you should actually worship Govardhan Hill. And everybody loved Krishna so much and trusted him so much. And... If you ever saw Krishna smile as a boy, your heart would melt so much that if he told you to jump off the Empire State Building, you would do it. So whatever Krishna said, nobody could refuse because he's so beautiful. And so that's what they did. They decided to worship the hill. And Krishna told them how to worship the hill. And they offered, it's called Anakut, they offered food to the hill. Because the hill is actually a manifestation of Krishna. And amazingly, as they offered food to the hill, the hill was eating the food. And no matter how much they offered, the hill kept eating it. And they asked everyone in the village to bring food. And they cleaned out the whole village. And still, the hill... You see, Radha Kalachanji Kijay. The hill was eating everything... And no matter how much they fed the hill, the hill would say, Anior, Anior, Anior. And Anior means, give me more. Give me more. I couldn't believe it. 
There's a village in Govardhan. How many of you have been to Govardhan? So if you've been to Govardhan and you've walked around Govardhan, you've walked around the hill called, called uh, excuse me, the town called Anayor. There's a town called Anayor, which is where they fed the hill and which where the hill was asking for more and more. There was no more to give. And Balaram said, well, just feed the hill Tulsi leaf. Tulsi is very dear to Krishna. And uh, that satisfied the hill. And then Krishna appeared as the hill and said, I am actually Govardhan. And so they had a big festival. Everyone was fed like we're doing today. But every year, Indra was worshipped. This was the first year he wasn't worshipped. So Indra became extremely upset and extremely angry. And he exhibited... Arrogance, so much so that he was so upset, he actually tried to kill the residents of Vrindavan. He was so offended. Can you imagine how offended you have to be to want to kill? So he's the god of rain. So he said, you've offended me, and because of this offense, I'm going to drown your village and you'll all die. So he sent... These clouds, they're known as Sambartaka. These are clouds that can devastate this whole planet. That actually could put this whole planet underwater. He sent those clouds. And everyone, for lack of a better word, freaked out. Literally. You understand freaked out? You know what that means. Yeah. They didn't know what to do because the rain was devastating. So... They all ran to Krishna. Krishna, Krishna, what do we do? Planets, why can't he lift a hill? He's the supreme. But now he's playing the part of a little boy to show affection to his devotees. So he lifts the hill, and everybody comes under the hill. And Indra is completely frustrated because his plan has been foiled by this little boy. And so for one week, everyone gets to stay with Krishna and nobody was tired and nobody was hungry because if you can spend time with Krishna, you won't be tired or hungry. Therefore, we can say, the only reason we're tired and hungry is because we're not spending time with Krishna. Prakrit Maharaj, he listened to the Bhagavatam. He had seven days to live. He was listening to stories about Krishna and he was so absorbed, he lost his hunger and he didn't sleep. So... They all got to spend time with Krishna. It was the first time ever they got to spend seven days and nights with Krishna. Otherwise, it's not possible. So, Indra finally realizes he made a huge mistake to try to challenge Krishna, what to speak of, kill the residents of Vrindavan. And he came to his senses and he was so embarrassed. He came to apologize to Krishna, and he brought his mediator. Who knows who his mediator was? He, it was like a, it was like a, yeah, it was a mediation meeting. So he brought his mediator. Who was his mediator? So he brought the Sarabi cow, because Krishna likes cows. He's thinking, if I bring a cow, Krishna's going to be like, he'll be okay. <laughs> he'll be pass. He'll be pacified. The cow will, the cow will soothe him down. So. 
he come he walks up with his tail between his legs and he apologizes. There's a place called Govinda Kund. This is where he came. If you go to Govardhan, you can go there, and there's a kunda there. And um, he begged Krishna for forgiveness. And you could say that the reason this pastime happened is because Krishna wanted to humble Indra. Of course, you could say this pastime happened for other reasons, but definitely... Krishna knows how to do many things at once, and this was definitely a major reason for this pastime. Because Indra is one of the administrative demigods. They are representatives of Krishna. And it is unbefitting for those representing Krishna to display qualities of the lower nature, to display qualities of materialistic people, to display qualities of ordinary people. These are supposed to be very elevated people. So he became proud. And secondly, what we find if you study Krishna Leela, that whenever his devotee becomes proud, Krishna steps in and does something to deflate his ego. Have you noticed that? There are many, many stories. <laughs> like this one story, it's so funny. You know Lord Brahma, he's the creator of this universe, but there are many universes. So once Lord Brahma came to see Krishna, and Krishna felt he was a little proud, so Krishna wanted to humble him. So the servant said, Lord Brahma has come to see you. And Krishna said, ask him which Brahma he is. You know, he's coming thinking he's the only Brahma. The, the, you know, like, what do you mean? I'm the Brahma. No, no, no. And, and he asked Krishna, how many Brahmas are there? And he said, it's more than you can count. So Krishna is very expert at deflating the arrogance and pride of his devotees. Why? Because pride gets in the way between the relationship. And Krishna wants love. And he, Krishna gives love, and he wants us to reciprocate with the love. And if arrogance gets in the way, then it pollutes the love, or pollutes the possibility of developing the love. So whenever Krishna's devotees become proud, he doesn't like it because it ruins the relationship. So he steps in and he pulls his deflating ego machine and somehow or other humbles the devotee. So that's interesting, isn't it? That Krishna was so concerned about Indra that he would go to such lengths to humble him. And Inter became very humble, and he apologized. So there, there are other things we can learn. Did Krishna accept his apology? Of course he did. In Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, no matter what we do, even though we fail, if we're remorseful, if we learn from our failure, if we, we regret it and we sincerely continue, we're forgiven. Krishna does, it doesn't even register on his radar that we did anything wrong. And I study marriage counseling, and they have a thing in marriage counseling called the dirty dishes when you argue. And the dirty dishes is when you argue and you bring up everything your spouse did wrong for the last 400 years. That's called the dirty dishes, right? 
You're arguing about, you know, today, what went wrong five minutes ago, and pretty soon there's the whole history of dirty dishes, right? Krishna's not like that. So when a devotee is remorseful, he regrets his mistakes, Krishna says, no problem. Because Krishna knows we're fallible. We're conditioned. We make mistakes. It's normal. And as I said, Krishna sees the sincerity. So when he sees that we're remorseful for our mistakes and we're willing to try again, try again, try again, he completely forgets everything that happened in the past. There are no dirty dishes in the sink. The sink is clean. The dishes are clean. They're all put away. There's no memory. And Krishna just sees you as you are now in the present moment, regretful and endeavoring sincerely to be his devotee. And so that's what happened with Indra. Indra apologized. Krishna said, no problem. Everything's great. Let's go move forward. So that's important for us to know because we make mistakes. But sincerity is what Krishna sees in our willingness to learn and correct our mistakes. That's all Krishna cares about. You know, there's so many times when a devotee would make a mistake and Prabhupada would simply say, what are you going to do now? He wouldn't dwell on the mistake in the past. You're such a fool. Why did you do that? I can't believe you did that. Only a person with no brain would do that. I don't want to see your face again. Get out of here. He never said those things. He just said, what are we going to do now? And as soon as the devotee came up with a plan, Prabhupada would say, then do it. And it was over. It was forgotten. Thank you. That is the way of elevated people. So certainly that is the way of Krishna. That is the way of any sadhu, isn't it? So what's happened, it happened. It's gone, it's past. No regrets. Let's move forward. So what to speak of Krishna? So in Bhagavad Gita, Krishna states this, Apichat Sudaracharo. Even though someone does something wrong, if he sincerely regrets and corrects himself, we should see him as a saint. He's ordering us to see him as a saint. Because So if we are sincere, if we're endeavoring our best, then we're saints. And that's how we should see one another. Now, Krishna... He's also a very interesting fellow. And the one thing I like about Krishna consciousness most is Krishna. Because he's amazing. And there are not that many amazing things in this world. And even if there are, if you watch them too much, they don't seem amazing anymore, right? The guy who rode the, you know, 100-foot tidal wave, you know, the first time you watch it, it's like, oh my God, if he falls off that wave, he's going to be dead and... But, you know, after you watch it 108 times, it's like, oh, big deal. You know, it's not that exciting. But Krishna is so amazing that everything he does is exciting, it's new, it's fresh. And Krishna is so amazing that when he conceived of this Leela of Govardhan, the whole thing was already conceived before it happened. Krishna Krishna's already know, he knows what Indra's going to do, and he knows what he's going to do, and he plans it all out. And why does he plan it out? Because he knows that this pastime is so special and and people are going to love it so much that you can have this amazing festival every year. And in fact, 
in Vrindavan, this festival is bigger than Krishna's birthday. Did you know that? It's a bigger festival than John Mastami in Vrindavan. So by enacting this one pastime, it creates this sequence of events that ends up creating this amazing festival and we're all here and we can hear about it, we can celebrate it, we can eat this amazing prasadam, we can go around Govardhan Hill, we can get absorbed in the pastime, we can learn from it and therefore we can become more absorbed in Krishna consciousness and happier. Naratam Das Thakur was a great poet and he wrote a song, I think it was Naratam or Lochan Das Thakur, and he was describing Krishna's pastimes. And after he described various pastimes, he said, let us remember these pastimes so that even though in this miserable material world, we will be happy. You know, you live in the world, so you know is, there's problems here, right? Have you noticed there's problems? Anybody notice? There are lots of problems, and sometimes... It's difficult, isn't it, to tolerate? Sometimes it's depressing. Sometimes life is hard. For some people, it's always hard. And even for the people for whom life is not hard, sometimes hardness hits. It strikes. Even though everything's going well, it's bound to hit. And so even though the world is as it is, sometimes difficult, Narottam Das Thakur is saying, but if we remember Krishna's pastimes, we can be happy even when we shouldn't be happy. And that's the beauty of bhakti, that a devotee is happy when externally sometimes there's no reason to be happy. I used to go out and sell Prabhupada's books, and people would get upset that we're happy. It would actually bother them because we're not supposed to be happy. It's like, you're a monk, you've given up everything, you got up at 4 o'clock, you took a cold shower, you slept on the floor, and now you're ha- out here all day selling books, and you're happy, I hate you! Because they're doing what's supposed to make them happy, working hard, making money, buying things, and they're miserable. It's true. And I met many people like that. They just hated us because we were happy, And we weren't doing what they were doing to be happy. So that's the nature of bhakti, that sometimes a devotee is ecstatic in his life and he shouldn't be. There's no external reason for it because he's absorbed in the leelas of Krishna. So Krishna performs these pastimes to help us become absorbed. And by that absorption, we gain so much happiness and satisfaction thinking about him and thinking about his love. So we have 12 minutes. I would like to dwell a little bit on this most important topic that we're learning from Govardhan Lila about pride. And pride is very interesting because our conditioned nature is we want to be recognized. It makes us feel good. We want to be honored. It's human nature, right? But there's a kind of respect or honor that we want that interferes with our bhakti. And it's said that a devotee would much rather honor others than try to grab honor for himself. And this is a way that we can engage, excuse me, this is a way we can gauge our spiritual advancement by how detached we become from the need to be recognized. Now, 
We have a problem in modern society because everyone is judging us by externals. Yes or no? What do you wear? What's on the label? Where do you live? Shoes, car, jewelry, head to toe. What kind of degrees do you have? Everything. You're just being sized up, whether you're successful or not, based on this criteria, which has absolutely nothing to do with you as a person. And so... It's a little bit difficult sometimes to be humble when everybody's trying to evaluate you by externals, isn't it? And our society's become sick. I used to think it was just L.A. was like that. No, I was just in L.A. They're not even like that anymore. They got burned out like that. Now it's everywhere else it's like that. And we come to spiritual life conditioned by that need to demonstrate that we're somebody externally, although we may be nobody internally, that need to pretend to be better, thinking that if people think I'm better, they will like me and everyone wants to be liked and loved. When in fact, no one will like you and love you if you're arrogant. They will like you and love you if you're humble and vulnerable and willing to admit your faults. That's the actual fact. So we got caught in this paradox. And so spiritual life is teaching us to not desire recognition of others, but more so to appreciate and give recognition to others and and learn that that will give us infinitely more happiness than any recognition we can get for ourselves. It seems counterintuitive, but whatever you give, you get. I have an experience, and I think a lot of devotees have this experience. When we're cooking for Krishna... Sometimes we go in the kitchen hungry, and after we finish cooking, we're not hungry. We've cooked for Krishna, we're feeding him, and somehow or other, we're satisfied. So you can, you can try this yourself. If you want to be honored, if you have that need to be appreciated, appreciate and honor someone else, and see if that doesn't fulfill the need. Because you can't give without getting. But by giving appreciation, you go up. By wanting honor, you go down, you degrade yourself. And so this is a big lesson that Krishna is teaching us again and again and again throughout his pastimes. He's always humbling the Vodhi, teaching them that the lower you feel, the closer you are to me, the more arrogant you are, the further you are to me. Does that make sense? You want to get close to Krishna? It's through humility. Now I'm going to tell you something that's scary. So if you get scared, please excuse me. I want to define humility. And it's a little difficult to understand because it sounds like low self-esteem. But genuine humility is so mind-boggling that one who has it thinks everyone is better than him. This is not low self-esteem. It's a different level. It's not influenced by any psychological or emotional dysfunction. He actually thinks others are better than him. Meditate on that. Not others. Every other person is better. Meditate on that. Now think, how many people do you think are better than you? And how many people do you think you are better than? 50-50, 40 60 70 30 30 30 is the personification of everything you don't want to be. And Krishna asked him, 
Can you go out and find someone better than you? He spent the whole day and came back. He said, couldn't find anybody better than me. That's the archetype of the materialistic consciousness. You think you're the man. Have you seen that before? Yeah. I don't want to... Yeah, we're seeing it a lot, aren't we, lately? Yeah. So... um, and he sent out Yudhisthira. And can you find someone lower than you? He said, I spent the whole day. I couldn't find I couldn't find anybody lower than me. Everyone is better than me. So Krishna was trying to show in very stark contrast, this is how a materialistic person thinks. When, uh, when they're on the high end of materialism, they think they're number one. And when you're on the high end of spiritualism, you think everyone's better. That's humility. That's inconceivable. But that's what gets you right next to Krishna. That's what gets you love of God. And it's a symptom of love that humility on this level manifests. And so therefore Krishna is always concerned that his devotee will not become proud. And whenever his devotee becomes proud, he pops their bubble so they will come down. And in that humble state, they're safe. And Krishna loves his devotees when they're humble. He doesn't like he doesn't like it when his devotees are proud. And it's so interesting because we don't like it either. Do you like to hang around arrogant people who just talk about themselves all day? Of course you don't. You like to hang around people who are just themselves. You can be yourself and not be judged, isn't it? That's what Krishna likes. We like it because he likes it. That's where we get it. Isn't it? So we have exactly five minutes. I don't know if you have any questions, but I, I thought I would stop now. So we could give you a, an opportunity to ask questions or make a comment. Yes, we have a microphone for you. I think that you're welcome. Okay. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you so much, Maharaj, for uh, such a wonderful class. Um, yesterday, I got a birthday present. Uh, the same book I see uh, on your back uh, from one of my devotee friend. And uh, I just want to know, I haven't even opened that book yet, but I want to hear from you a brief about uh, this journey of bhakti, uh, about this book. This was not planned. (laughs) Although it would have been a good idea to plan this. But I got a birthday present, so I need to check. (laughs) Well, we have three books. This is my latest book. It's called Living the Wisdom of Bhakti. And it was based on realizations I had over the years that you could know something in your head and not practice it or not even know how to practice it or think that you're practicing it and you're not. So I think the best way to describe this book is this is a spiritual self-development book because almost every chapter gives you exercises to practice what's in the chapter. And so what I've tried to do is take the philosophy and dissect it into a practice to understand practically, like if you say, I'm humble, okay, let's practically look at it. You don't. If you disagree with somebody, is it easy for you to listen to that? Is it easy for you to discuss it with them? That's it. For example, a sign of humility. Is it easy for you to compromise and in order to cooperate? That's a sign of humility. So we break it down uh, into a process. You know, and first, to understand what it is, and then into a process of practicing. So I've done that. There's 40 chapters, and each chapter is dealing with something. Guilt, envy, resentment. And then we talk about positive practices like japa and sadhana 
And so it's very, it's a very self-reflective book. And I couldn't have written this book 30, 40, 50 years ago. I could only write it in the last five years because I didn't understand things deeply enough until about five years ago. I'm celebrating my 50th anniversary initiation in March. So you could say basically, so basically, this is, I would say, the maturation of my realizations. And all of this book was written not because I read something in a book, because I did everything. I didn't write what I was reading about other people doing. I wrote what I was doing and sharing my realizations of how I found my way out of the difficulties or how I understood things, what the process to understand. So uh, I think this book is very valuable and it's, it's difficult for me because we're talking about humility. So now I'm telling you this is a great book and I'm a great author and you know, you should all buy it. But so, so I'm caught in a conundrum because I know this book has helped a lot of people and will continue to help people. So in my own humble way, that's all I can say. Um, then we have another book. This book is called Joppa Affirmations. And this book was a total accident, and this is the best-selling best book I have had, and it wasn't even my idea to publish it. In fact, I didn't even publish it. These affirmations came out of principles that I discovered in my effort to help devotees improve their japa. And I have a policy that don't teach it if you don't do it. So everything that I would teach, I would first be the guinea pig. I would practice what's working. I would go more deeply in myself. I would try to perfect my job as best I could so I could help others. And so I came up with 20 principles that I felt were like the essence of, of really what japa is and what it means and the practice of it. And I put them into affirmations. And the whole idea of these affirmations is it sets you up in the ideal consciousness to be able to chant rather than just go into chanting this puts you, these are meditations or affirmations that put you in a much better state so that automatically your japa will be better if you just meditate even on one of these affirmations. So if you think about it, it's quite amazing that you could read a few affirmations and just immediately transform your consciousness into a state where your job is going to be better and easier. So that's what this book does. And people say, who should get this book and I say raise your hand if you have a bead bag and you're the one who should get this book if you're chanting or you want to chant now we have some good or bad news um, we've sold out of this book this book is a gift to Nitananda it's the last one and if you speak Spanish we have a few Spanish but it's published on Amazon and to make it easier for you you can buy it tonight we're going to order it on Amazon. I checked out. They said we would get it between November 6th and 8th. And then when you come back in a couple of weeks, we'll give it to you. Of course, you can go on Amazon if you choose. So now this book, this is called Uplift Yourself, Change the World. And what I did to write this book is I went through the 34 workshops I've given and the 80 articles I've written. I probably wrote more than 80 and the maybe, I don't know how many, yeah, a thousand recorded classes I've given to pull out little samples of tidbits, of essences, sutras, from each of those writings and lectures. So this is like 
the essence of the essence of the essence. So we have, we have a chapter on forgiveness. You want to know the essence of what I teach on forgiveness is here. And we have a chapter on humility and pride and all, all these, all these topics that are elaborated in this book. They're here in sutra form. And this book also is very good for people you're introducing to Krishna consciousness because it's general spiritual principles. It's not religious. I always say, I always say spirituality is just what is true. It's not this religion or that. It just is. This is how it is. So you could say this book is kind of like how it is, but it clarifies. It gives people a vision maybe they don't wouldn't normally have. And um, even I read it, and I'm amazed that I wrote these things. Um, because I meditated deeply on many of the things here, and I, I'm even happy to read it. So this book is like a pick-me-up. You can. Uh, one devotee said, everywhere I go, I take this book, and I'm going to take it to my grave. That was a testimonial. So, and um, I guess she liked it, I guess. <laughs> so it's like that. It's useful. It's like a manual. So that's there. And here... On this is 32 gigabytes of workshops. There are 34 workshops, 700 hours. Uh, workshops on marriage, forgiveness, humility, chanting, vows, guilt, relationships, um, how to get out of the material world, and three easy lessons, etc., etc. So these are things which I think are essential for us to learn. So that's here. And here are eight albums, 30 hours of live kirtan. 25 other songs, mostly in English, um, on this USB stick. So they're all available here anytime tonight, or maybe we'll take it out there later. That might be a good idea. If you want to see what's, what workshops we have on this USB, it's all here on this poster. And so thank you for your question. Oh, he left. Yeah. That was a good question to end the class with, yeah. So thank you. It's it's nice to be here. I used to live here. I came first in 1993. And uh, this is like another home for me. And somehow or other, um, I've been traveling extensively. And it's like really hard for me to make time. But I was on my way back to Alachua. And I thought, well, what I have to do in Alachua, much of that I can do here. So here I am. And we hope to see you again soon. When I return, as Gunagraya Marsh would say when he was asked, when are you coming back? And he would say, on the first. And they'd say, the first of what? And he'd say, the first chance I get. So I will see you on the first. Hare Krishna. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. I think now it's time for prasadam, and then uh, at 8 o'clock we'll come back and we'll sing the Dhammadar Ashtaka to Radha Kalachanji. Hare Krishna.